Hello and welcome to the Berman Hour podcast. I am your host, Jeff Berman. I am the singer-songwriter behind the band Divided Heaven. And I have an interview to share with you today with Mr. Frank fucking Turner. Let's fucking get it. This was a great conversation. Frank even said it was one of the best interviews he's done recently, which, you know, he should have seen coming, obviously. I mean, it's the Berman Hour podcast. This is, yeah, I ask the good questions. That's, that's what I do. But I've been doing this into Oblivion series where I've been talking to the various personnel that I worked with on making the new Divided Heaven record, Oblivion. And right now it's Monday, so as the crow flies, Oblivion is going to be out this Friday, February 4th. So this is the last episode that I am dropping before the record comes out. I've got a few more people to talk to on the back end of the release. But again, if you're just joining because you want to hear this great interview with Frank Turner and maybe this is the first time you're hearing the Berman Hour podcast, great, welcome. Or perhaps this is the first time you've even heard of a band called Divided Heaven, which is my band. Perfect. Welcome. I am glad to have you. If perhaps you have a Mini Cooper car in the city of Lancaster, Pennsylvania, that has Union Jack flags all over it and the biggest FTHC Frank Turner sticker I've ever seen in my life, know that your neighbor has a new record coming out on Friday. That's me. That was produced by Frank Turner. So yeah, I just saw that car two nights ago. I was like, I got to meet this fucking person. I have no idea who this is. He's my neighbor. Oi, let's get it. Anyway, this is a great conversation. Before we get into it, I want to thank the folks at punknews.org for partnering with me to present this Into Oblivion series on the Berman Hour podcast. And I'd like to thank everyone who has pre-ordered the new Divided Heaven record, Oblivion, already. If you haven't yet, that's okay. You got time, man. Go to dividedheaven.com. Dividedheaven.com. You'll find links for both the North American pre-order through AF Records and the European pre-order through Gunner Records. Again, dividedheaven.com. I am trying to sell records here. Maggie, be quiet. I'm not going to shy away from that. Also, if records ain't your thing, that's okay. Find us on Spotify. Just look for Divided Heaven or follow us on any social media. So despite the fact that Frank and I worked entirely in a remote capacity during the uh, production and, and everything for these songs, I still think it was a lot of fun, and I think we brought out the best in each other. He and me as a musician and me and him as a producer. That sounded weird. But, but you know, no, you know what I meant. You know what I meant. Anyway, yo, I tried to stump the dude. He does a million interviews. I've listened to a number of them. When I hear people ask him the same fucking questions, I am less inclined to listen. So if you like listening to Frank Turner answer interesting questions, you've come to the right place because I tried to stump the man with interesting and new questions. I hope you enjoy it. I hope you check out my band, Divided Heaven. I hope that you subscribe to the Berman Hour podcast and... Enjoy. <laughs> yeah, I can write the songs, but and have some production ideas, but I can't do the engineering shit. No, fair enough, man. I'm I'm finishing a record this weekend for some friends of mine, and they asked for one little fix on the guitar part, and I was like, "That's easy. Don't worry about that." <laughs> And it took me 40 like hours an, later. It took me like an entire day to fix this one little squeak on a guitar. <laughs> I had to literally like sort of rebuild the chord from like different snippets of audio from elsewhere and all this kind of shit. And it, yeah. I pulled it off in the end, but it was not a simple, not a simple, as simple a fix as I'd promised them it would be. 
<laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm I'm curious. Well, first of all, happy belated birthday. Thank you very much. That's very kind. You turned 40, right? I did, yeah. How was that weird? I'm gonna be 40 in a few weeks. Oh no, I mean I shouldn't I shouldn't overreg this. It's fine, to be honest. I don't know. Personally, I did all the worrying that I was gonna do about turning 40 several months before I actually turned 40. But so by the time I actually okay. got to my birthday, it was just like Let's just get on with this. I can't be asked to to be stressed about this anymore. And and ultimately, right. like as my, as my wife put it very sagely, she said, um, "Well, it's better than the alternative of not turning forty, because yes. uh, the only way that happens is uh, pretty negative." So you know, um, it was part of the deal uh, <laughs> when I signed on. Uh, so here we are. Yeah, you know, I can't remember what I had for breakfast yesterday, but I remember uh-huh. a tweet that you sent out when you turned thirty. Because oh, you said really? I'm celebrating 30 <laughs> in a in an airport, it's very fitting, and I for some reason that oh, stuck really? with me. Huh? And I was like, oh, I wonder are are you in a train station turning 40? What do you, where, uh, where were no, you? I, you I was well <laughs> in a very pandemic appropriate way. I was uh, well, I was at home. I mean, I I went to a bar with some friends and then came yeah. back to mine and drank into the early hours and then uh, realized I was 40 because it took such a long time to recover. I yeah. sort of I partied like I was 25 and then uh and then wept like I was 90 uh for some time <laughs> after the event. So yeah, and I mean I you know I I think I learned a salutary lesson in there and I haven't been drinking very much this year. <laughs> well, it's only been a couple of weeks. So we'll it's true, see. but I mean like I had yeah. one drink last night and I feel kind of shady today. So um yeah. Ugh. Yeah. We can't all be Lemmy, and I'm not sure if many <laughs> of us. Will, I'm not sure how many of us would want to be Lemmy or why. No, no. Uh, last night uh, at dinner, my wife. I, I told her I was going to be talking to you this morning, and she goes, "You should ask him why the hell he agreed to work with you." <laughs> and I was like, oh, "Thanks." And then I woke up this morning, and I was like, "She has a point." <laughs> well, I mean. <laughs> That is uh that's a that's a brutal phraseology right there. Um I mean I guess the thing for me like br- to briefly speaking is that when the pandemic started in 2020 which already feels like it was about a decade ago. This is this is a long answer to a short question but we will get there. Um I'm lucky in some ways that the pandemic happened when it did. I mean I you may feel the same just in the sense that like I mean first of all you know, if this had happened when I was in my kind of early mid twenties or whatever, when I was at the time of my life, when I was kind of forging my way, that would have been more difficult for me. I mean, speaking purely as an artist, I'm fortunate to have established a a body of work and a fan base and people who are paying attention. And I feel very strongly that people who are still kind of finding their audience or whatever have suffered much more than I have. But secondly, you know, like I live in a place that I like, and I live with my wife who I love, and we have a cat and uh, all these kinds of things. And the other thing is that I'm fortunate because it was a few years ago now that I sort of um, started the work of kind of a little bit of self-care, should we say. And that began with kind of dealing with substance abuse issues. And But but more broadly speaking, you know, I said that about my 30th birthday. I mean, I think the thing is, if, if all you do is just tour forever, you become one dimensional. You become a yeah. cardboard cutout of a human. So I'd started kind of like figuring a few things out, which came in very handy once my normal mode of existence kind of got put up on bricks or made illegal or however you want to put it 
So this is such a long answer to a short question. Um, so at the beginning of the pandemic, I was like, I need a project. Do you know what I mean? I need a hobby. I need something to focus my time on because I, one of the things that I've learned is that structure and routine are things that are really useful to me. And it's, a, it's an interesting thing to me that a lot of people, my younger self included, kind of view life on the road as this sort of like wildly free existence. And in some ways it is, but in some ways it really isn't. Do you know what I mean? When I'm on tour, I wake up in the morning and I read a day sheet and I know what I'm doing every minute of the day until I go to sleep. Right. And my tour manager orders me around and I do what she tells me to do. My point being, I needed a hobby. And I right at the beginning, I set myself two poss- two options. One was to learn to play the piano properly. And one was to learn how to use logic properly and to, to kind of work with audio properly. And um, I still can't play the piano. So, or at least not well. <laughs> I, so, say, I still can't do both. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> I mean, that. <laughs> thankfully, no. No, I mean, you're so, nailing it. You're nailing it. Well, That's thank great. you. And I mean, I think, yeah. I think like a lot of musicians, I had logic already and I used the top kind of 2% of its capability as a piece of technology. And I used presets and everything and... I mean, I just used it as a sketch pad, essentially. And that's fine. Yeah. And you can do that. But it was just like, I've got this here. Let's figure out what more it can do and what more I could learn. So the first thing I did, I watched a 168 video long tutorial series o- over the course of like months. Do you know yeah. what I mean? And I did uh-huh. some online courses and I started kind of messing around. First of all, some of my stuff. And then, you know, I, I love it. And I got really into the idea of being a producer, an engineer, a mix engineer, all of these kinds of things. You know, I, I bought some speakers and then I bought a little bit of outboard and a better interface and started kind of toying with that kind of thing. And, you know, you can do all these courses and, and you can, there are things, what, actually one of the first things I did, not well, I might add, but um, Converge, one of my all-time favorite bands. And there was a thing they did quite near the beginning of the pandemic where they put up some multi-track sessions of a bunch of their songs that you could download for free and just play with mixing them yourself. So yeah, I had to go and mix some Converge songs. They didn't sound as good as the finished version. You might be shocked <laughs> to hear. Um, but it was... You're not I was Kurt a, Ballou yet. <laughs> no, no. And I mean, I know Kurt well. He's a good friend, but like he is also very, very, very good at what he does and one of the more technically funded people I've ever met. When I first met Kurt, he had a business card made of copper that you could turn into a distortion pedal by soldering wires in the right place. I mean, <laughs> no it, was ins- it was insane, right? That's awesome. But anyway, so the point of all of this being that I was in a place where I was kind of keen to work on stuff. And I was trying to be like, and indeed still am sort of trying to be humble about it. You know, I don't want to be like, in the same way that I find it deeply annoying when anyone anyone who excels in one field assumes that they automatically excel in another, and I'm thinking primarily of musicians who become actors or vice versa here. But like, just because you're good <laughs> at one thing, it doesn't mean you're good in another thing. And I didn't want to yeah. march into the world of produ- production going, well, I've made like how many records? And it's like, well, I've I've written and recorded and played the music on those records. I didn't fucking move mics around and shit you know so um and then i i think i'm right in saying you dropped me a line um and said that you you'd heard that i was working on stuff and would i be interested and i said yes you you gave a a similar but briefer uh and i appreciate (laughs) the detail but you no no it's good because i figured that's kind of what was going on the cogs that were turning but you gave an answer similar to that I think it was on the hard times podcast Mm. and I was just kind of in a position again, I was lucky that I had a new records worth of material to work on when the Mm -hmm. pandemic really hit, but at the same time it upended all of my plans. And so everybody that I was going to work with in LA, the last few months that I was there, I was like, I'm not going in a room with you. I don't, I don't, we don't understand this yet. And then by the time I was settled here, 
you know, and I when I reached out to you, I, I remember it was like a few days fucking before election day, so everyone's just losing yeah. their mind. But <laughs> it, it almost put me in a headspace where I think I said to you, here's two songs. It's the last two I need to finish for this record. I'm not precious about them. So if we get way weird with it, cool. Or essentially saying like, I know you're new at this. If you absolutely fuck it up, that's okay. Yeah, yeah, totally. You which, know? which was, which I was appreciative from my end because I mean, you know, as with anything in life, there, there is some value to bravado. You know, and the older you get, the more you realize how many people are bluffing in life generally. <laughs> um, but nevertheless, you know, it's kind of it, rather than someone turning around and going, "Here's ten thousand pounds, and now finish this album," you're like, "Holy fucking shit!" Yeah. So it was, it was, it was an easy read. But I mean, I don't want to do down what we worked on. I think, I think you and I both. Uh, did did our jobs well yeah i i think so i mean beginning of the end is you're in and out of it so fast but you brought it some really great life yeah I, I, th- I seem to remember the main thing that my main addition to that song was that um analog synth kind of wee, 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 wee yeah. kind of noise on it which was i mean do you, do you know the band reggie in the full effect you know that band? Yeah, of course yeah okay yeah. it's funny like i mean I, of course you do but not everybody does but um i oh, always you're talking to <laughs> But no, but I mean, you, you know, you've got vagrant know. records, early 2000s vagrant records just in, embedded in my DNA at this point. Yeah, we very precisely <laughs> age ourselves by um, being a, by being very familiar with Reggie and the Full Effect. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> they had a they had a sound of bringing a kind of analog synth into a kind of punk or rock or however you want to put it or emo if you want to go down that road. Yeah, kind of sonic context that I've always kind of been slightly obsessed by because they're the only band I can think of who did that convincingly. Do you know what I mean? Or off the top of my head, I'm sure there are others, but it, and it's such a cool. It can be such a cool and organic sound. And like a lot of people who grew up with guitar music, you may be the same. I have this kind of like ineradicable adolescent suspicion of the synthesizer as a concept. Do you know what I mean? Because that was the stuff that was on records that cool kids listened to, and that wasn't me. Right. You know. So it's 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 almost like I turn to synth plugins or synthesizers with kind of like a wish for redemption in my heart pretty regularly. Do you know what I mean? It's like, we can use this. It's going to be okay. Yeah. I mean, I think that's something else I mentioned is like, this is my fourth record, you know, Mm. like as a singer songwriter, and I'm sure you understand that where it's like, there has to be some attempt, even if it's futile at reshaping the wheel, even if we're not reinventing it and and thinking outside the box, which is such a cliche trite thing to say, but it's important. But it's a good way of putting it, and I think and I think about this a lot. I think that an artist has a duty to change. There's one exception to that, which is ACDC, and that's fine. But um, you know, the, like you and I both, anybody who makes music, there is and there is a curious thing in terms of the way that some people, in terms of like the public, for one of a less loaded term, think about music and musicians. And I understand it. You know, you fall in love with a certain thing at a certain time in your life, and it has huge import. And the, but there are there are certain types of people who are just furious if a musician tries to change in any way, and it's just like, I mean, I don't want to be the same person I was when I was twenty three for the rest of my life. I mean, that guy had something going for him, but Christ alive, there were some things that could be tweaked. <laughs> and on a practical level, I mean, I know this is slightly abstract right now because of the world we currently live in, but I still play stuff from my early records live. You know, if that's what you love, you can still hear it. I'm not like parking yeah. that by doing something new now. But yeah, we have to go and exist and you can do that whilst understanding that the box that you're trying to think outside of isn't the biggest box in the world i'm completely familiar with the concept that i'm not brian eno or like bjork or radiohead or like you know do you know what i mean right. i'm not this I, I don't operate in super progressive groundbreaking musical territory 
you know, I generally have yeah. kind of guitars and drums and vocals and songs that are three minutes long. It's pretty trad in its way. But nevertheless, uh, over time, four albums in, whatever it might be, you get to kind of understand what your own kind of, on the one hand, limitations, but on the other hand, kind of instincts are. And I find this is something I've had with the new record I've just finished is that like that I've had a, it's an interesting interplay when it comes to the concept of instincts, because on the one hand, it can be natural and it certainly feels good to follow your instinct. But if you, that's the only thing you ever do, then you make the same record over and over and over again. And so you have to kind of train yourself to push outside of that, you know, and, I, and yeah, so I get you. <laughs> yeah, to your point, I think that, you know, for those keeping track at home, Frank and I, we didn't, we weren't never in the same room together. We were yeah, not on the right. same continent together, right? No, no. So this was well, entirely remote. Yeah, and yeah. I think that, I think that that worked and not just for the songs I did with you, but also for the songs I did with uh, Tim Van Dorn and Charlie Stavish too. Mm-hmm. Where the songs I feel like would have sounded different and would have been safer if we would have been in the same room yeah. together. And because we had that distance, yeah, yeah, sure. Implied within that distance is this underlying fear of everything that's happening. Sure. To me, it made it feel a little bit more visceral. Yeah, for me, that's a, that's a good way of putting it. Actually, I hadn't thought about it in those terms. I mean, I do think that there's something about like if you have two different people collaborating on a song. Sometimes, if you're doing that in real time in a studio, it can be quite useful to let leave someone alone for a bit and let them do their thing without staring down their neck the whole time. Right. I mean, you know, I just made a whole record remotely. It was very strange. I've still never met anyone who played drums on it, and there are four different drummers on the record. Um, and I had one of the weirdest days of my life. I was in London. Uh, Rich Costi, the producer, was in Vermont, and Elam Rubin, the drummer, was in Los Angeles, and we were on like a uh, three-way zoom call but we were also um you know the audio was being tracked in the appropriate places so that there wasn't any kind of latency issues but like you know i was there to kind of just sort of keep an eye on the creative direction of it or whatever not i should add that i needed to do very much of that because elam is i'll tell you what i mean that guy's gonna go far <laughs> those <laughs> those nine inch nail boys they've got a future um but uh yeah he's very very good at the drums but um it would it was very odd. Do you know what I mean? And, and yeah. we made the whole record, the whole, once the drums were done, me and the, the rest of my band went to a studio in Oxford and we were tracking in Oxford, but again, with Rich listening in and he was on a, a day long FaceTime call kind of propped up against a monitor. Um, and it, you know, I, before we did it, I was really nervous. I was like, is this going to be creative? Is this going to be fluid in any way? Do you know what I mean? Like this is, this is fucked. Like he's three and a half thousand miles away. How's this? Costi knows what he's doing though. He, he does knows. know what he's doing, but actually having made one record with Costi before, I mean, I, I enjoyed this process much more than the previous time with Rich for a number of reasons. One of which is due to the fact that last time around was the first time I'd ever really worked with like a proper, like quote unquote producer. And it that was, was tape deck heart. Tape deck heart. Yeah. And yeah. I wasn't really kind of emotionally prepared for what was about to happen to me. And it felt a little bit like being beaten up because Rich is a taskmaster. And in the past, I made my records with my friends and it was all loads of fun. And we just kind of slapped stuff down and moved on with our lives. And Rich was like, sing that again for the 48th time or whatever. And it was just like, help me. Um, (laughs) Like, you know, kind of pushing, putting putting handwritten notes up against the side of the window in case a passing motorist might be able to come to my aid. But I mean, so partly we understand each other better as two individuals now. But the other thing was, I found the process of remote recording weirdly focused in a way I was not expecting. Because if you have a bunch of people in a studio who are musicians and tech nodes, and then someone goes, oh, let's come up with a different guitar tone, 
you can waste entire days going through every guitar in the studio and every amp in the studio and every mic in the studio and every possible combination of those. And in Rich's case, trying out different fucking cables to plug into the mics and all this kind of thing. And it's just, yeah. you, you can grind into the ground. You know what I mean? And in this case, because we weren't in the same room, and Rich couldn't get his claws into the guitar setup or whatever. We just had to, you know, we had like three good amps and like three good guitars and they were just set up and it was like, we'd try a couple of different things and then be like, cool, just, just don't play it badly <laughs> kind of thing. Yeah. And um, you couldn't spend the first half of the day showing each other funny cat videos you found on the internet while you were asleep or whatever. And there was just, it was just like, now is the time to work. So let's work. And there was something oddly, kind of streamlined about that process which i really enjoyed there there wasn't room for procrastination but exactly and and you know there's only one thing that you really can do which is to make music and to to, to yeah. work on the thing you're working on but i i never i hadn't thought about the thing that you were mentioning earlier and i think it's a really good point that there is a sense of kind of isolation from each other which can lead to freedom obviously remote recording as a concept pandemic or no is limited by the lack of the kind of the magic in the room and the jam session thing and there is space for that mm -hmm. many great records are made that way but many aren't do you know what i mean yeah and many say they are but they're not yeah <laughs> as well let's face it let's yeah 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 it. sure so yesterday i think uh sleep is for the week turned 15 years mm. old yeah something to your point now because fthc is, is your ninth record ninth. Not i counting. know what a statement what a thing to say out loud and be true yeah so that leads me to my question um when are you gonna hang it up when, are you gonna... <laughs> when will you fuck off? No, no, but I'm, I'm curious um, because some, for some reason, and I, I'm not comparing, you know, my apples to your oranges or hmm. that sounded weird, but you know what I mean? But like, I, it took me until my fourth record, right, to realize like I can put more emphasis on the record and how it's going to stand the test of time as opposed to thinking about how I can translate it with my band on stage or sure. how I'm going to do this on oh, a solo yeah. tour. Mm -hmm. Was there a point in time where you thought, it, within the timeline of your full-length releases at least, mm -hmm. was there a period of time where you started to think about Frank Turner as a brand and Frank Turner mm -hmm. as, like, you had to be built to, you needed to have longevity because yeah. you had this team behind you sure. and putting well, importance into the records, not so much into playing as many shows a year as you could? I, that's That's an interesting question that i've not really chewed over before so congratulations i do interviews a lot and this is well that's why that's what we do here on the berman hour we yeah okay i'm 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 impressed yeah yeah <laughs> i mean it's an interesting question when i made my first record i didn't think anything was really going to come of it and and initially not very much did it's worth saying we did a headline tour when that record came out and played to and i i've been touring solo in a very diy way kind of on my yeah. own on the train for a good three or four years before that record came out and then the record came out and I did a tour with my band, which was kind of a construct to a degree, like not everybody in the band had played on the record and so on and so forth. But um, we did a tour and we played to sort of 200 people a night and 300 in London. And that felt like we were, you know, essentially Death Leopard. But, um, and then, but the thing was, the next tour we did, the numbers went down which is kind of a, as you will know well, is sort of a bad sign generally. And it was yeah. just like, oh, well, maybe that was my shot. But the, and the only thing that kind of pulled me out of that, it wasn't quite a nosedive might be an exaggeration, but that kind of descent was the feeling that I had better songs arriving. So the purpose of the second record was to just kind of almost just improve on the first one, right. do you know what I mean? It was like I can do this better, so I did that, and then, um, and then on the on the off the back of Love Our Own Song, things started really picking up. 
the next thing, I mean, I thought, I thought incidentally, this is where you're going with the question, so I'll touch on it, like that whole thing about like, do you want to make a record that is just a document of a live sound or do you want to use the studio as a tool? And I think that for me and my career, there's been, there's a kind of spectrum between those two points and I've oscillated mm-hmm. between them happily. I don't think I need to pick a lane particularly, do you know what I mean? So with yeah. that in mind, by the time we got to my third record, you know, I got to the point of playing to um, sort of a thousand people a night kind of thing. And it felt like it was still going up. And I now had like a proper band. So we made that record, Poetry of the Deed, kind of as a live record. We cut it pretty much live. I did the vocals afterwards. That was kind of an experiment, which I have mixed feelings about, if I'm honest with you. And I think in the process, kind of learned that going too far in that direction is a risk. That one of the things is we didn't really spend that much time rehearsing and kind of arranging the songs before we did this. So it was pretty kind of like first draft. And if in my heart of hearts, if I could go back, I would spend more time rehearsing before we made that album. And and then it's bounced around between there. But I think I think it, it was probably from about like album four onwards was the prospect that it, it and this is the thing. The making a record and knowing that X amount of people are going to listen to it for sure, not necessarily continue to listen to it, but at least gonna check it out can kind of turn your head as a writer. And that's a thing, when you're talking about songwriting as opposed to record making, that is a thing that I try very hard to ignore. Do you know what I mean? Because I think there's something slightly fake about saying, oh, well, you know, loads of people are going to hear this, so I'm going to write these songs differently. That's bullshit. That's not how I wrote songs in the first place. You know, if you're writing to cater to an audience, that feels very compromised to me, and I try hard not to do that, you know. And, And it's lovely when people go, oh, my God, I love your songs. But it's kind of... I always want to put a little footnote and go, going, I wouldn't care if you didn't kind of thing, you know, um, or at least for, on a purely creative level. I mean, of course, it's, that's not 100% true in the sense that if I put out a record and everybody hated it, that would, of course, affect me in some ways. Although, I mean, having said that, I'm bouncing around topic-wise here, but like, you know, No Man's Land, the penultimate record I did was controversial in some quarters and um, it got pretty slated by various people and I didn't give a fuck. And I was quite pleasantly surprised to discover that I didn't give a fuck. Yeah, good for you. Yeah, it made me feel like I did have some integrity after all. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I can understand, like, there were some people that I knew that didn't like the record because, like, they loved the topic and the approach and, and everything that you were going for with the pod, the whole presentation, yeah. A+, plus. but it was a little out of left field uh, sure. in terms of maybe, like, what people would expect. But, yeah. you know, I, I think I think certain... I think most people can check their expectations for that if they yeah. have an understanding that there's going to be another record soon. And with right. you, there always is. Yeah, yeah. I know? mean, well, and one hopes that over a certain period of time, you kind of earn the right amongst your own fan base. I don't like that word, but you know what I mean? To 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 have your flights of fancy or whatever. and Brand equity. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Um, I just threw what, open my mouth a little bit. <laughs> oof, oof. Um, but like, you know, the brand loyalty perhaps, but like, yeah, I, yeah. I, I definitely like, I, f- I felt very like an artist both during and after No Man's Land. It was just like, this yeah. is an idea that came to me and I've completed it to the fullness of how I can complete it. And I'm fucking proud of it. Excuse me. And, and I don't care if other people don't like it and I still don't. Um, and that felt quite good anyway. So, I mean, I, it's, it's a funny old thing because you know, the flip side to everything that we're talking about here, it's not just making records like. I mean, obviously, I've done fundraising during the pandemic for my touring crew. And the fact that underlies that is that there's a good, like, 11 people just from a live context who make a living out of me working. That is a responsibility. I mean, on some of us, it's something I'm hugely proud of. You know, how cool is that? There's people who raise their kids and pay their mortgages and so on and so forth. Yeah, 
just because I fanny about with a guitar on stage. But like, that's huge. Yeah, yeah, it's it's cool. But at the same time, it's also it's a weight. And there, it's, I mean, sidebar. There was a part of me that spent a, a couple of years before the pandemic was a suggestion, sort of thinking maybe I'll take a year off the road and just go and like live in Paris um, <laughs> or whatever. And uh, do what I Strummer a, did, and just you should just uh, sign up for a marathon on a whim. <laughs> yeah, but I, I, I'd slightly call bullshit on that story that he'd been out drinking the night. So before do I. And then just ran yes. twenty-four fucking miles. Bullshit. Bullshit. He ran like half a kilometer. Ask somebody for the safety pins of their little sachet with the number yeah. and that's picture taken. And, yeah. yeah, well, well, got a cab to the finish line or whatever. I don't know. I mean, <laughs> God bless him. But like, I mean, so it's 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 a and and it's a strange thing because there are definitely there are times when, I mean, to put it slightly less kind of fancifully, like you know, there are moments, there can be moments where it's like, I have I do get exhausted on the road from time to time, and it's like there are days when it's like I I want to I need to take a break, but then you look around and you think to yourself, well. It's going to, my decision in saying that is going to affect other people. Do you know what I mean? That's an interesting moment in a career. Do you know what I mean? It's just kind of like, huh, this isn't just me being Mr. Mr. Bulletproof and Mr. Beholden to no one forever. Like there are responsibilities here. And like, certainly, so over here in the UK last, um, last summer, there was a sort of a degree of live touring that could be done, which I did some of. And quite a lot of those shows I'd played as a as a duo, just me and Matt on stage, <clears throat> for which we would normally take a crew of two, maybe three people. But because of the nature of the year, I took a I took my full crew for those shows, and it was kind of hilarious <laughs> because you had just have people standing around the stage being like, "I have nothing to do. There's no fucking drunk kid here." Um, but you know, no one had worked. Do you know what I mean? So it was just yeah. like, let's just try and share the love here a little bit because ultimately, I have other sources of income other than playing live, and other people don't. So you know, it feels. It feels like a decent thing to do. Hopefully, we'll be back at it soon. Who knows? Yeah, I, I hope. And and my heart goes out to you. I'm so sorry you had to cancel the tour. You'd be on tour right now. Uh, I would be in rehearsals in right days. now. The first day, yeah. the first day was going to be Tuesday. I, I mean, it sucks. I mean, the 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 um, the temperance of that suckiness is the fact that everyone over here is in the same boat. If I was the only person having to cancel the tour, and when I was making the decision, it felt like I was. <laughs> if you see what I mean, that yeah. would be particularly shit. But actually like all tours all big tours over here are canceling right now i mean or, or have been canceling for this period of time i think they'll pick up again come sort of march or so i think i hope because how, how are things with you guys how, how where you are right now how's are people playing shows i'm i'm looking i have a new lens in life a couple you know i have a very sick father <laughs> which is bad oh, but I'm i have a very uh yeah it's it's okay thank you and but i have a very beautiful healthy uh baby boy who's um seven and a half months wow congratulations and, that's amazing yeah thank you and he's great um but he ain't vaccinated because he can't get vaccinated and yeah, sure. his mom and his dad are and everybody else in his family but i'm so i'm seeing the world here through a different lens than a, a lot of my uh my music colleague colleagues and the people that i would typically tour with so some of them are active some of them are not but at the same time the numbers here are so astronomical that when I think back to March of 2020 and this idea of hashtag flatten the curve and let's look out for each other, I am having uh, difficulty coming to terms with the fact that that has just been completely flushed down the toilet. And it's very sure. much a like, like everyone's kind of doing what they would normally be doing, but they're doing it with different levels of safety, which I respect. But at the same time, I'm thinking like, why? Like, I, I, I know, especially this month, January, it just sure. kind of seems like, if yeah, people I, aren't canceling I, shows because of the weather, they they have to cancel it because people are getting sick. Just 
take the L and bounce on this if you can. Yeah, yeah. So, well, but I understand people in your position who have people yeah. that are dependent on them and all but that. But this so is the thing. And like, I mean, one of the, the, I totally see what you're saying. I mean, from my point of view, I guess one of the things that comes to mind for me is that like in March 2020, we were talking about an emergency situation. It was an emergency situation. And right. society, humanity collectively responded in what I still think was a pretty appropriate way with the obvious errors that one would expect from facing an unprecedented situation. But nevertheless, the, the motives were good and all that kind of thing. From my point of view, I, I remain somebody who doesn't want to make anybody sick by doing my job, Jesus Christ. But like at the same yeah. time, how long can an emergency situation sustain itself for? And, and I mean, certainly, you know, this is maybe a controversial point to some people, but I mean, like one of the things I feel like I, that has become apparent radically to me in the last couple of years or to everybody is that like one of the advantages of living in the kind of wealthy economies that we did is that we could afford to just stop for like a fucking year do you know what i mean or a year and a half and like you've got to have some some uh some buffer zone to be able to do that but ultimately that buffer zone isn't indefinite do you know what i mean um and mm -hmm. i say that on a personal level in the sense that like there comes a time when I need an, well, I mean, arguably part of the reason I'm doing production work now is it's like, I also need to like earn some money sometimes, but also as a society, broadly speaking, you know, I don't, I'm not sure how indefinitely we can sustain a kind of lockdown economy. Do you know what I mean? And there are definitely some, there's a certain kind of class of people who are very comfortable working from home on their laptops and all the rest of it and good for them, but that's not everybody. And, and there was a line over here, which I found extremely cutting to myself as much as anybody else, a friend of mine commented, you know, there wasn't really a lockdown. Middle class people hid while working class people brought them food. And it was just like, ah, yeah, yeah ow. Do you know what I mean? Fucking ow. Um, yeah. and there was something and, similar over here that this, I think it was in, uh, yeah, the New Yorker that kind of cut home. Right. And it's, so, so yeah. it's, it's, it's a complicated situation. I mean, you know, and like, are we going to live for a couple of years where touring is a thing that happens in the warmer months or something? I don't know, maybe. And mm. like, you know, I, I try quite hard not to be too kind of like, woe is me about the whole thing. You know, my industry and the culture that surrounds it is hugely important to me. That doesn't necessarily mean that it's broadly societally important. But at the same time, it's not societally irrelevant. Do you know what I mean? Like, there is a thing that I have done with my adult life that a lot of people, myself included, enjoy and take value and meaning in their lives from. And it's, if you want to get boring about it, it's been a huge net contributor to the British economy and this kind of thing. And boy, have I paid some taxes in America as well. Um, <laughs> gladly so, I should say. It's, it's, I, I sort of walk a bit of a tightrope about it. Do you know what I mean? It's like, I don't want to be here and like, it is absolutely vital that I am allowed to play shows tomorrow because i'm not sure that's true but at the same right. time you reach a point where it's just kind of like I, th I think that you know as a society we have to more move towards some sort of accommodation rather than eradication i think that that seems self-evident to me here's one of the major differences because i toured in the states in in october last yeah, year and i wanted to what, ask about that yeah well one of the things that blew my mind over here lateral flow the quick lateral flow tests are free they just send them to your house for free you get them you do them it takes five minutes and then you can go on with your life and like my wife and I, and indeed everybody we know, just we, we just have a stockpile in the kitchen cupboard. And before you leave the house, you do a quick test and then you go out. And that changes the game quite a lot. And I'm aware now that it's not like that in the USA. No. Yeah. And, and, and therefore, some of my, um, some of my uh, prognostications about how America should do things or whatever else um, weren't quite as simple as I thought they were before I got there. 
Yeah. Did you feel safe on that tour? Did you and your, your crew feel safe on that tour? We did, but that's partly because my um, my tour manager is a, is a machine. She's the greatest tour manager in the world. And she did an insane amount of preparatory work. I mean, she always does an insane amount of preparatory work for a tour, but she did more. So, for example, talking about the testing thing, once we figured out that you guys don't get free lateral flow tests, we all stockpiled them over here, and we all flew with suitcases full of tests. And then when the bus arrived at the venue, she would get out and test everybody who was working on the crew house crew that day. Wow. And she'd yeah. let everybody know that we were going to do this, and everybody was cool with it, actually. And, and indeed, she had been prepared for people to not be cool with it, but in the event, people were, which was pleasant. And, you know, I didn't do any post or pre-show hanging out, which was kind of a mixed thing for me. I mean, on the one hand, like I've never wanted to be an artist who hides from their audience. You know, that seems kind of bullshit to me. Uh, and I want to make music that is conversational with people on a level rather than a diktat or whatever. But at the same time, getting off stage, getting straight in the shower and then just putting on like my jammies and like having a glass of wine and then going to bed was pretty fucking great. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. Yeah. Uh, and actually the rest of my, like Matt, because it was a duo tour. So Matt, who's in my regular band and everything. Yeah. He was like, this is this is what I do all the time. And I was like, you you what? <laughs> you lucky motherfucker. <laughs> like this is this is so much more relaxing. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, it was it was a there were mixed feelings. But we made it through the whole tour and there is a part of me that feels like that in itself was an achievement and no one got sick. And again, like Tree, my tour manager, she had all these like protocols in place for like what happens if someone on the crew goes down. You know, or somebody on the bus goes down and it was basically we're going to leave him in a hotel <laughs> with like an Uber Eats account um, and yeah. pay for the hotel room and just carry on with the tour. And everybody was ready to kind of pick up other people's jobs. I mean, the exception to this would be me in the sense that mm -hmm. like, I'm not sure right. how the ticket buyers of Ohio would feel about, feel about Matt. I'd, I'd pay a ticket to see Matt by himself. I, I mean, so would I, yeah. but, but yeah. Um, I'm not sure if the world is caught <laughs> up with this just yet. Yeah. Well, I don't. I don't want to keep. Too, I don't want to keep you too long on a Sunday. Oh no, you're morning, fine. I'm enjoying I, myself. <laughs> okay, good. I, I did. I did want to talk about your new record a little bit. Sure. Yeah, yeah. There's there's a promo photo, and I think it's something that you're using for like a, a, a limited edition uh, cassette tape cover. That's yeah. you without shoes and socks, just bare feet on a rocking chair on a porch, and yeah. I immediately got Boys for Pele era oh, Tori Amos vibe. Yes. I was just like, fuck, like. You know, when she's holding the gun and she's got those fucking snakes on her feet? Yeah. Oh. Well done. Oh. 10 out of 10. That is precisely and exactly what that photo... And that photo was taken there on oh, the other okay. side of that okay. window. Um, because we, we have we have a portion. No snakes, though. Where I live no now, snakes. And though. it makes me feel terribly... Okay, good. No snakes. No snakes, no suckling pigs or shotguns. Um, I do have a rocking chair, though. It was a, it was a Christmas present last year from, from my wife. Yeah, I mean, that's one of my favorite albums of all time, personally. So yeah. um, I was going to say, there's not, there's not really anything stylistic to be read into that particularly. I just thought it was a cool picture. Well, I read into it anyway, because that's what okay, I good. So Good. <laughs> I think if I had to pick a Tory record that could be a symbolic or emblematic of, of being a self-titled Tori Amos record, it would probably be Boys for Pele because that record, in terms of instrumentation and style and aggression and oh yeah, uh, delicateness, I, yeah. like it kind of runs the gamut for her. And you know, it, it may, I haven't heard your new record in entirety yet, but it's it kind of the the singles anyway run the the spectrum, right? Because you have the sure. Gathering and Nonservium on one hand, and then A Wave Across the Bay, which is just a beautiful song, kind of Thank on you. the other end of the spectrum. Uh, very welcome. 
And so was naming your record FTHC a way of having a self-titled Frank Turner record I, without having it be so on the nose? Yeah, k- kind of. I mean, I guess what I would say is that, like, obviously, so I did the when, literally for, like, the first solo show I ever did, I did up that cross logo thing yeah. and, and, and was then, and have then spent the intervening nearly 20 years now being surprised about how many, how few people on this side of the Atlantic get what it's <laughs> referenced to. Um, you have a dog. I'm very jealous. Um, no, yeah, uh, Maggie. She's great, but she's a she's a terrible secretary. She never brings me <laughs> takes my calls. She but just yeah, I mean, snores and farts on the floor. Yeah, beautiful. That's if I had a secretary, snoring and farting would be top, <laughs> top, top of the job requirement. It's not many people on this side of the Atlantic know what it's a reference to the the HC thing and the cross and all the rest of it. And to me, it's like, and I'm sure for you as well, it's screeching it's the like, old yeah, yeah, exactly right. And uh, but actually, I mean, hardcore as a phenomenon was was much less of a thing over here generally. Anyway, but I did it up, and I've spent the intervening years telling everybody it stands for like haute couture or like hates custard or whatever the fuck. And um, <laughs> <laughs> but obviously, it's it's the hardcore thing, and it's been my little tag, and it's been in the back of my mind to use it for an album title one day. For, for a while. And then when the material for this record started coming together, and it is, broadly speaking, a more aggressive record. I mean, Wave Across the Bay is about as gentle as the album gets, really. Okay. Maybe there's, there's one other song that's kind of in that sort of, at that intensity level, should we say. There's a song of the record, which is like an old school hardcore song that sounds like youth today. And I can't wait for people to hear it. It's, it's really fun. Is it called Crucial Times? <clears throat> it's not. It's called My Bad. It was going to be called <laughs> okay. Mea Culpa, but I then realized I couldn't possibly have two songs with Latin titles on one record or else I would literally burst into pretentious flames. So, <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, it's, so it, it is more aggressive punk hardcore whatever you want to call it than anything i've done as a solo artist and it was like oh shit it's got to be this one yeah it's uh, and i I did have alternative um and and i i mean i have one major contender for an alternative title which is unsupervised unhappy and uncool which i still think it's a lyric from a song and i still think it's a fucking banging title for a record but um i've wavered on the issue of fthc and everybody in my band rich costy uh, my manager and my wife were just like, "What are you fucking talking about? Like, this record <laughs> has to be called FTAC, you stupid yeah. prick." And I, I was like, "Oh, okay." Um, and here we are. But yeah, I mean, it's it's fun. It's and and again, still over here. I when I do interviews with people from the UK, the first question at the moment is always, "What does the HC stand for?" And uh, it's just like, Jesus Christ, dude! <laughs> if you got any good suggestions, send them in. <laughs> I would just I would just tell him to go home, put on Spotify, put on Victim in Pain by Agnostic Front. And mm. just take yeah, take yeah. a bit of a, of a lesson. First hardcore band I ever saw play, Agnostic Front. I saw him in 1997. Blew my fucking mind. Check this out. The bill uh, was Agnostic Front, Vision, Maximum Penalty, Morning Again. As somebody who to that point had listened to like The Clash and The Pistols, do you know what I mean? And, and like Green yeah. Day and Offspring and stuff. I went to see those four and was just like, holy shit. Well, 97 Vision, so that would have been the kids still have a lot to say. Tour, mm-hmm. or maybe that was after that. Singer of Vision passed away a few years ago. No shit. Uh, unfortunately. Really? Yeah. Dave, um, what was his name? Damn. Dave Franklin? Yeah. I'm, I'm sad. He was the first person I, from, I ever saw stage dive who was in a band. And, and, oh, and yeah? He, and he did it at that show. And I was like, is he allowed to do that? Uh, <laughs> you know I mean? It was just like... No, man, I do Vision, Vision, like, I mean, let's let's face it. Like, the New York hardcore genre, like, those bands, like, 
there can be a lot of posturing in, oh, in yeah. that world. And Vision, I don't know if it was because they carried themselves with New Jersey pride in that very more yeah. real way, but like they just didn't have that veneer of like tough guyness, even though the music had sure. that, that element to it. Yeah. So, but then like, you have, the, the other, bands that I played other, in as a kid, like yeah. it, it, they were always so friendly and so cool. And yeah, so yeah. those other bands were like a little too either they were legends in our mind and we were uh, trepidatious about approaching them, or sure. they were just kind of standoffish because that was the the posturing they were. Yeah, to. but then I mean we've gone down a rabbit hole here, and boy, are we staying here for a minute? But like, you know, one of the reasons why it's it's the it's the uncool option. But my favorite New York hardcore, if not hardcore, full stop band ever is Sick of It All, and the reason one of the reasons for that is that they bring a kind of humor and fun to the process in a way that so many yeah. of those other bands didn't. And I remember they did a two night stand at the Garage in London in roughly 98 and i had their records and i went down and there was a lot of tough guy posturing on the uk hardcore mm -hmm. scene at the time and something yeah. like sick of it all doing a two-night stand was very much like a kind of fucking talent and fashion show for a lot of the kind of dudes in hockey tops and all the rest of it and um and it was just cool because no, no one in the band really felt like that even pete like he's just kind of like he's just a nice dude having a good time and it slightly kind of cut the ground out from underneath some of the macho posturing bullshit that was kind of floating around the scene at the time in a way that really tickled me then and now it was like you know i mean lou is just a really friendly dude um yeah also, Absolutely. incidentally, I now have to tell you, I mean, this this might be a wrap-up story, but I have to tell you my story about when the first time I met, well, actually, the second time I met Lou Collar. I did a bunch of shows with Sick of It All when I was a million dead a long time ago, and they were uh -huh. lovely, beautiful, welcoming people. But it was, we were on tour in America, and it was about 2012 or 13, something like that, and our tour went over Thanksgiving, and we don't know what Thanksgiving is, and we don't care, um, And but obviously, you're not going to do a show on Thanksgiving because no one's going to fucking come. So we had a day right. off on Thanksgiving and um, my friend Dennis uh, lived in New Jersey at the time. And he was like, you can park the bus at my house and just we'll cook you Thanksgiving dinner. And it was like, wow, that's amazing. And, and it was a beautiful thing to really experience proper Thanksgiving with it, with his family. And, you know, he, he was very generous with that. We got pretty drunk. I think that's part of the deal. You're supposed to get drunk yeah. on Thanksgiving. And um, at about sort of 6 p.m., having watched an American football game of which I understood nothing at all, Dennis called up his neighbor to come around and just hang out who was Lou Collar from Sick of It All. <laughs> so Lou Collar comes in and I was shit hammered drunk, like really drunk. Like, um, I'll tell you how drunk I was. I was drunk enough to forget that he's straight edge. Um, and was like, I was sort of waving a bottle of Jameson around being like, dude, do a fucking shot with me. I want to take a photo of me and you doing a shot. And he was so polite. He was like, no, I don't think that's for me really. And I was like, don't make me look like a pussy or whatever. And just, just generally being an awful, awful human. Um, and, uh, and he was so gracious about it. And I was like, man, <laughs> so staggered off into the sunset. <laughs> and the following day kind of woke up and was like, oh my God, I'm a bad person. So should, should and the off chance that Lou Collar hears this, I do apologize. I uh, know he'd, he'd forgive you. He, he's, he's great. <laughs> well, he's, he's, yeah, he's a lovely guy. I just, I just have one more question kind mm -hmm. of about some of the singles that you've released. Sure. 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 A wave across the bay, a beautiful tribute to, to Scott Hutchison, um, mm. Miranda, very uh, personal issue for you uh, about your father transitioning. It, you know, it's one thing to like write these songs and have them on the record. It's another thing to write them, have them on the record, and then feature them as singles where you have sure. to do press specific to it. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. Very much so. You're you're fucking Frank Turner. You're not going to write these songs and not go deep. Like, that's just not your style. (laughs) You're not going to stay at, like, a cosmetic level. Yeah, yeah, So, Thank you. (laughs) Yeah, but, like, on one hand, is, is like, is it part of the healing process for you? I imagine it is, but is it still fucking, like, are you trepidatious about pushing them as singles because of the difficult subject matter? Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, and the thing is, I mean, on some levels, I mean, the process of making art is catharsis on some levels, and and that helps. But, like, at the same time, like, I mean, I had to have a pretty difficult conversation with my mom, actually, about Miranda, because whilst my mom is as accepting as she's ever going to be of the situation, I think that it's still a very raw topic for her. Not not the transition, really, but the things that preceded it. And she was not especially stoked about that until until she and I had had a long discussion about it when I sort of had to, like, talk her down a little bit, if you know what I mean. I mean, the thing is, like, it's, it's a funny old thing. Like, when you write an, inten- a, a, an emotionally intense, gritty song, however you want to put it, there's a big part of me that works really, really, really hard not to think about how other people will hear it while I'm writing it. Do you know what I mean? And that's that's art as a sacrosanct process or whatever. And, yeah. you know, it was like, I'm going to write a song about uh, my dad, right? You know, it's almost like blinkers on. Like, what do I have to say about this? And then you sort of keep those blinkers on while you're tracking the vocals. And then while you're mixing, there are a couple of days where you're like, oh my God, <laughs> like <laughs> shit. And then, um, you know, and then, and then, in terms of, I mean, on a purely technical level, I let my label pick the singles because I'm historically quite bad at knowing about what may or may not get played on the radio, mm-hmm. which is the only point. And actually, you know, to me, it's equally important. All the songs on the record are equally important. I don't, the singles aren't like my favorite ones necessarily. Okay. They're the yeah. ones that are going to gain traction in a way that serves our commercial or promotional purposes or however you want to put it. So, but I mean, I, it didn't surprise me the choices that the label made. Because ultimately, we live in a in a music industry in which um, attention is the is the central currency. Do you know what I mean? It's no longer yeah. very hard to make a record and get it distributed. It's very easy to do that. There's just now so much music that cut through is the thing that we're all chasing, right? So it didn't surprise me that those songs were picked by the label. I mean, I had to do a bit of kind of talking to myself about how I was going to talk about these things in public, you know, and how I was going to. Uh, fend off certain questions but generally speaking people are pretty respectful or at least they, their intentions are respectful do you know what I mean and, I, and I've done enough talking to other people about my art over the years that I can fend off a question that annoys me reasonably easily uh, I might then have yeah. to go and scream at, at a wall afterwards but you know <laughs> that's fine that's good thank you for this time I appreciate it thank it's you been for... so much fun this has been the most interesting interview I've done in forever this is absolutely true Told you so. Told you. What can I say? All right. Thank you, Frank. Thank you, Jess. Thank you, punknews.org. Thanks to all of you for listening and tuning in to this interview here on the Berman Hour podcast. And thanks to everybody who has pre-ordered the record. You can do so. Get it anywhere in the world on vinyl or CD. Go to dividedheaven.com. Dividedheaven.com. Now, the music that you hear right now, that bed of music, and that you heard in the intro of this podcast is a song called The Beginning of the End, which was produced by Frank. Right now, I'm actually going to play the entirety of a song that he produced called Creep, which features his wife, Jess Guise, on guest vocals as well. So I hope you enjoy this Divided Heaven song. Thanks, y'all, and I'll see you next week.